This is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones, episode 619. This is an uh, April Fool's Day episode, and I'm going to give you two blasts from the past. One, The first one is a way blast from the past. It's from my mission, and I recorded this in uh, 1991. You're going to hear the actual recording that I did on a tape recorder, a series of little jokes that I sent to my mom. I'll, I'll explain it. And mom, sorry once again for, for doing this. I know you're still a little traumatized by what happened. And then the second thing I'm going to include here today is an early, early episode of Infants on Thrones from August 2013, Manacled Mormon in Sex Chains, where the Quorum reviews the movie Tabloid about another missionary, not me, uh, and a kind of weird experience. If you haven't seen the documentary Tabloid, I'd recommend it. The uh, rowdy infants conversation <laughs> you might enjoy you might not but anyway that is your april fool's day while we're all in quarantine episode of infants on thrones enjoy i'm about to do it for the first time and i'm gonna do it with a girl a special girl who makes my heart kind of flutter Makes my eyes kind of blur I can't believe I'm about to baptize her Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Osland, and you are about to hear a recording that I made about 21 years ago while I was a missionary in Japan. Now, during my mission, I got in the habit of making cassette tape recordings and sending them home to my family and to my friends. It was about 50 cents to mail a letter and a dollar to mail a cassette tape. So I figured that an audio recording was worth the investment. They could hear my voice. I could talk. I didn't actually have to sit and write. So I actually have dozens and dozens of tapes from my mission. Now, I've never sat down to listen to all of them, but this one tells a particularly bizarre story that I thought the listeners of Infants on Thrones might find interesting. So let me give you a little background here. Now, I made this tape towards the end of March 1992, and in Japan, we would teach free English classes once a week. We'd teach it at the church. It was kind of a sneaky way of doing service that had a not-so-subtle BRT component to it. Now, BRT is Build Relationships of Trust for the Uninitiated, um, and it's an important step in the commitment pattern, which was our very own institutionalized roadmap to manipulation. It made for great careers in Terminex and New Skin for thousands of return missionaries later in life. But anyway, I'd been out on my mission for a little over a year when I made this tape, and I was a senior companion at the time and a district leader, and my star was on the rise. Zone leader and AP were just a few steps away, I thought. Anyway, so right before I made this, 
there was this Japanese girl who had wandered into our English class. And I still remember very vividly, she was wearing this short black leather skirt and a red silky blouse. And at first glance, I thought she was a prostitute. And I can admit it now, I thought she was cute. I thought she was very cute. And she spoke great English. So she stayed back after the class, looking at the bulletin board and all of the LDS pamphlets that were strategically displayed near the exit. I don't remember if we spoke at all that night, but I do remember my surprise when she showed up for church that next Sunday. And she attended the main sacrament meeting, and then uh, my companion and I met with her during Sunday school to find out if she was interested in taking the missionary discussions. And she was. In fact, she made a point of saying that she really needed what we had to give her because of what a terrible sinner she was. And of course, my previous prostitute bias was immediately confirmed, albeit falsely confirmed as it turned out, because she wasn't really a prostitute. She was a Christian and a 27-year-old virgin to boot. Her name was Yuki. Over the course of a few more discussions, Yuki's story came out. Now, her family was Buddhist, of course, but at 13, she had joined a Christian church. And it immediately made her a pariah in her family. And there weren't many Christians her age, so she didn't really have much of a social group. And she couldn't keep a boyfriend for very long because they all wanted sex. And she was waiting for marriage. And she told us this story on a P-Day once, and we were with this Japanese guy named Sakamoto, who was one of those eternal investigators. You know, he wasn't really interested in the church, but he was very interested in the American missionaries. He loved to speak English with us and take us around on our days off, and he was just a play friend. So this day, Yuki was at the church when he came to pick us up, and he was immediately interested in her, so he invited her along with us. And when he found out that she was a virgin, he nearly went berserk. Is it just because you don't know how? Because I'd be happy to teach you if you'd like. Now, this is what he said to her, and it made me and my companion very uncomfortable. So my companion started a conversation with him to distract him, and I started a conversation with Yuki to help calm her down because she was also very upset. And the conversation went a little something like this. This is always what men want from me. I don't think I'll ever find a good man. Well, I'm sure the Lord has something planned for you. Do you really think so? Of course. Because I do feel like the Lord led me to your church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure he did. And I feel like he led me to your church so that I could find my husband. Probably. I mean, we have great young adult activities. There's lots of single guys in the church that you could meet. And I think that my future husband is you. Now, secretly, I was flattered by this, but I was even more secretly terrified because this was the kind of thing that could get missionaries sent home for disgrace. And, you know, when you choose the very first step on the road, you you also choose the last. So I tried my best to dissuade her. Uh, This can't be. I'm a missionary. But you won't always be a missionary. And she reached over and she pulled my name tag off of my shirt. I still have a year left on my mission. And then I go back home to the U.S. And she said, I can wait. So, yeah, you know, she was cute. Yes, it was flattering. Yes, but this really wasn't what I wanted at all. 
So I actually called the mission home that night, and I explained all of this to the AP, you know, the assistant to the president. And I told my parents about it on a, my weekly tape to them, and I fully expected that I'd be transferred. And I, I wanted to be transferred. But the transfers came, and they went, and I wasn't transferred. And this is about the time that I made this tape. Now, I swear, everything that I've told you up to this point really happened. And what you're about to hear in this recording, though, well, let me just play it for you, and then I'll explain it more at the end. But let me give you a few Japanese words that I say a lot. So I'll say dendo, and that means missionary work. And I say eikaiwa, which is the word for English conversation class. And I use the word chirashi a lot, which is a flyer. So like an eikaiwa chirashi is the little homemade flyer that we would pass out on our daily dendo activities. You know, we would advertise our English class to try and get people to come to church. It was our primary tactic for dendo. And I have no idea why, but as I listen back to this, I hear that I say, and stuff like that so much. It, it really makes me crazy. But I was just barely 20 years old when I made this. And, and I kind of think that I had watched the movie Strange Brew one too many times because I kind of hear this Bob or Doug McKenzie thing in my voice. I don't know. I thankfully stopped short of saying hoser or eh. But anyway, um, here's a little time capsule for you. So let's go back, 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 back. And stuff like that. It's, uh, let's see, I don't know, it's Thursday night. Well, as you can tell, the sound quality isn't great. And, uh, transfers was last night. So I'll walk you through to make sure that you don't miss any of the key points of the story here. Last night. And, uh, just thought that I'd go ahead and start another tape here. Like but the main thing I'm trying to communicate right now is that mission life is pretty boring. Today was a pretty good day. Pretty mundane. Uh, but oh yeah. Well, you know, I told you about that girl. There's this girl. Her name is. Her name's Yukiko. Well, like in in Japan, they like short names. Her her first name is Yukiko, but like I just call her Yuki. It's good. It's just kind of. Kind of what, Elder Osland? I don't know. Anyways, um, I talked to her on the phone. Hang on a second. Are, are missionaries really supposed to be talking with girls on the phone? Uh, like I told you, after I got the transfer call and just kind of cleared things up. And anyways, we bumped into her while we were streaming today and, and talked a little bit with her and stuff. And she like she told me that she wanted to talk about something, but I'm not sure what it was. I still kind of feel uncomfortable around her. I just like don't know. I don't know what to, to think, you know, or what to even do. But. Can you hear all the confusion and angst in my voice? And just wait. Anyway, so I didn't get any mail again today. Better change the subject. Don't want the parents to see how much I'm thinking about this girl. Um, anyways, um, it wasn't that exciting of a day. There's really not too much to talk about, so I'll go ahead and tell you talk about something else when there's something more important to talk about or like something more interesting. Okay, bye. See what I mean? Totally mundane. But this was really just a tactic. See, I knew who my audience was here, and I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew that I had piqued their interest with this talk about Yuki, and then clumsily backed away from it. 
Nope, nothing boring or mundane about what's to come. Okay, so it's Thursday night again, and it's probably about 3.30 in the morning. Wait a minute. Why is a missionary awake at 3.30 in the morning? Um, at about 11 o'clock, I heard like this, there was like this tapping on my window. Tapping on my window. I wonder who that could be. And so I went and I looked and I didn't see anybody there. And uh, so I went back to sleep and I heard it again. And I thought that I saw somebody... Like, in, it, we don't, like, have a backyard, but I thought that I saw someone in the back and stuff like that. So I, like, put on my overcoat and uh, some shoes and went out there to check it out and stuff like that. And uh, I, like, couldn't see anybody back there, so I started walking back to the, to the door. Can you appreciate the way that I'm building the tension here? You know, the way that I'm using narrative constructs to fan the flames of anticipation. I think I used this same approach when I used to tell people about that um, <clears throat> evil spirit that appeared to me in my bedroom a few years earlier. And I got just about to the door and I heard, you know, Osorando. And I turned around and it was this girl you could call. Yep. So I'm saying here that this girl came to my apartment and knocked on my window at 11.30 at night. And it's now 3.30 a.m., mind you. So what have I been doing for the last four hours? Like you said, that she wanted to talk and stuff. And so we, like, sat down. And uh, I don't know. I just felt really uncomfortable because we, we sat down to talk. And she, like, wouldn't say anything. I didn't know what to say. I mean, I didn't want to trying to leave and stuff like that. I told her it was late and stuff like that. But she looked like she was about to cry and stuff like that. And I thought maybe that she was having like some problems with work or something like that. And I guess what I should have said was, get thee behind me, Satan, or something like that. I don't know, it was just really weird. I'm freezing right now. Um, I'm sitting in the bathroom right now because everybody else is asleep. I don't even think they know that I was out of the apartment. Uh-oh. Out of the apartment so late at night and the other missionaries don't even know? Um, anyways, we just talked and, um, I don't know, it's weird. She was just telling me all this stuff about how she can't think of anything else but me. And, um, she, like, really... She says she's prayed about it and stuff like that, and she really feels like she's supposed to marry me and stuff like that. And, and if she prays about something and she gets a feeling of confirmation, well, come on, I'm a missionary, we're Mormon, you know that stuff means things. Tell me about how she thinks she's felt the spirit and stuff like that. She wants to be baptized so that like, we can get married at the temple and stuff like that. And we, we haven't even talked about that discussion yet. I have to laugh every time I hear that. We haven't even had that discussion yet. So she's really getting stuff from the spirit here, you see? You see where I'm going with this? I, I don't know what's going on. I, I don't know why the mission president didn't transfer me. I'm so, I was so surprised at that. So, yeah, the mission president had an opportunity to transfer me, but did not transfer me. You know... 
there's a reason for everything. I don't know. I, I mean, she's really pretty. She is really pretty. And she's really nice and stuff like that. I, I do like her. I mean, I don't know. What to, I can't. But I can't start liking an investigator. Of course, maybe that's why I was sent to this mission in the first place. And maybe she's getting true revelation from the Lord. Uh, who could possibly know? The Lord does work in mysterious ways. It's just all so tricky and confusing. Does the Lord want me to be here? Maybe she's right. Maybe the Lord did want me to marry her or something like that. Maybe that's why I'm in these moments where I came and Japan on my mission. I don't know. I really don't. So let's move on to the next segment because the very next day was awesome. You know how I had been wondering why the Lord didn't transfer me and in a moment of late night weakness, I speculated that maybe it was for this girl. Well, today we got a new investigator. Today we found this guy and I think that maybe he's the reason right there. Um, we like, we're streeting today. And we decided to go to a place where we usually don't street. Yeah, tell me if you've heard this one before. Uh, missionaries go off the beaten path to a place they normally don't go, and that's where they find the golden investigator. Huh? I mean, motifs like this have power, man, power. And usually we walk from the show tent to the Eki, the, the train station, and then we walk back to the show tent. But today we decided to walk, to walk over just by this like, little elementary school, and I don't, I don't know why we just decided to do that. Well, I know why. And uh, we were walking um, on the, by this elementary school, and we really weren't seeing any people, really weren't stopping any people. And so I decided to kind of have a contest with my companion to see, you know, like who could get out the most Eikawa Chirachis and stuff like that. So we were giving them out to everybody and stuff like that. And uh, I just decided to be a little crazy. <laughs> and we were in an intersection. And it was a red light. And so I went to this one car, and it wasn't even the car that I wanted to go to at first. I don't even know why I went to this one car. See, this is like double meant to be because I didn't know why we were even in this area in the first place. And then I didn't even know why I went to this one car that I went to. I was just, it was almost as if I was being led by the spirit, not knowing beforehand where it was that I was going to go. I mean, I, I I think I've read about that somewhere. So I went to the car and uh, I gave the guy an Eikawa Chidashi and uh, he kind of looked at me a little bit funny. It kind of scared me at first. But um, then he like smiled and and uh, and he took the flyer and they drove away. But then about ten or fifteen minutes later, he came back and he told us that he wanted to be baptized. He wanted to take the missionary discussions and he wanted to be baptized. That's how golden of an investigator this guy was. See, he said that he wanted. I mean, he came to us and he says, "Oh, I want to be baptized into this church." which just really blew me away. I mean, you can imagine. Um, yeah, wouldn't that blow you away? It almost sounds too good to be true. But these are missionary stories where too good to be true happens all the time to the really valiant and faithful.
So I'm going to skip ahead a few days here. Um, I go on on the tape to talk about how great this guy is as we give him a few of our first lessons. And then I come back to this girl from time to time. But mainly I'm focusing on our new investigator, whose name is Uso, which is the Japanese word for lie. But, of course, I knew that my mom and dad wouldn't know that. So uh, we, we go on to uh, Sunday when he shows up at church, but also this girl is at church, and this is where the fireworks really start to fly. Um, okay, it's Sunday, and today, wow, wow, it was a big day. Um, <laughs> this sounds like a soap opera. It does sound like a soap opera. So here's what's going to happen. Uh, Uso comes in and he sits in the back and uh, this girl Yuki sits up in the front next to me. And, you know, as you do in church, you lean forward at certain times and the person who you're with next to you puts their hand on your back and starts scratching. And in my meeting, I'm doing that. I'm doing this, and then Uso in the back stands up and goes berserk and starts yelling at her. And the guy stood up and he starts yelling something at her and just totally running on off in Japanese that I didn't understand. And I didn't understand what was going on. Um, and they stormed out. Then later that night, she called me and told me that Uso is her ex-boyfriend and that the reason he looked up the missionaries in the first place, I mean, we just happened to find him on the street, but the reason that he was so interested was because he wanted to get her back. So it was all a ruse. So I really don't know what really is going on. Except that I really did know what was going on. I was spinning a Joseph Smith-sized yarn, and I knew that my parents were on the edge of their seats. But the biggest news came later that night when Yuki came back over to the apartment to warn me about Uso, and it was raining. So we had to uh, sit in her car, or an angel with a flaming wet sword would sploosh us. Otogi Banashi means fairy tale. Um, let me tell you a little bit about what happened last night. Uh, about probably 10, 15 minutes after I got done making you guys a tape, um, there was a knock on the door, and it was Yuki. So this is the point where Yuki comes over to warn me that her ex-boyfriend is actually a member of the Japanese mafia, the Yakuza. Which explains, like, his really nice car and his really nice clothes and all that kind of stuff. It's like gold chains and stuff. And that he's put out a hit on my life. Which is why I've been transferred to a new area for my own protection and assigned a new companion, Otogi Banashi. And Yuki is crying as she's telling me this, and she's so concerned. So we sit down in her car, since it's raining outside, and one thing leads to another, and... And all of a sudden I felt her hand on my back again, and... 
know, from you see my hair and stuff like that. And I started getting really... Another reason why I'm kind of glad that I got out of there because um, I didn't stop her when she was doing that. And I should have... Um, I hope you don't think that I'm like a totally bad person or anything like that, but she was wearing her hands to my hair and then I like looked over at her and we looked into each other's eyes and then it was just like a natural response, you know. Look at that, oh, on that, kiss the girl. Anyways, um, I didn't tell the mission president about this. Um, and as soon as I kissed her, that I just all these thoughts went through my mind, like, oh, you just ruined your mission and stuff like that, and then like, oh. So was that like uh, the angel on my shoulder telling me that I'd ruined my mission and the devil on my shoulder saying, oh, no, you didn't. Keep going. Keep going. This is why you're here, you know. Or is it just me? Who knows? So we were just out there in a car, like kissing for about another half an hour, 45 minutes. Okay, there's about 10 minutes left of this recording, but let me just stop it right here. Now, I must be a really awful person, because if you haven't figured it out by now, this was my idea of a hilarious April Fool's joke. I recorded it all in one night, and I just made it seem like it was over consecutive days. And I tried to unfold the story in a very dramatic way that I knew my mom and dad would buy into and just keep them on the edge of their seat, uh, and, and giving them, like leading information that, uh, you know, like when I listen back to it, I know what I was thinking at the time, so it makes me laugh. But I, I never understood why my mom hated it so much. It was just so funny to me that she was ready to book her flight and fly over to Japan to come and save me before she even heard the part about me having a hit placed on me from the Japanese mafia. Now, I, I really don't know why I did this, other than that I was super bored. And it was actually, you know, sort of a way that I could vicariously engage a bit in this fantasy what-if world with this cute girl who liked me, and who I also knew that I'd never actually do anything with. But looking back now, I think there was even more to it. Now, I was definitely a believer, and I really did try to be a good missionary. I wanted to bring people into the church, but I also saw things about church culture that really made me nuts. And I think that this may have been a subconscious way of sort of punishing my parents a little bit for raising me in this nutty Mormon culture. It was almost as if I was saying to them, hey, you guys put me in this really difficult place with all of these stupid rules and these stupid narrative motifs and expectations for divine guidance with everything and intervention and everything happening for a reason. So let me serve this all up for you as if I'm totally bought into it and I'm twisting this stuff around to validate my own obvious natural desires and just show you how stupid this stuff really can be. 
I don't know. Maybe that's what I was doing. That's what it sounds like to me now. So anyway, I don't really know what this is all about. I just found this audio here on my laptop as I was cleaning out old files today. And I thought, I bet some of our listeners would really get a kick out of this. Yeah, that's right. A kick. So hopefully you did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Hey, what are you still doing here? Okay, you want to hear more? Okay, so I'll tell you what happened afterwards. Um, You know, as I alluded, my parents didn't exactly see the humor in this thing. And my dad wrote me this really long lecture letter about how there's some things that you just don't joke about. You know, some things are just too sacred. Now, years later, when I was at Indiana University, I decided to study humor theories for my PhD, and I read something from Mormon folklorist Burt Wilson about how a person needs to have enough psychic distance or emotional distance in order to really joke about something. And it got me wondering if joking itself doesn't also function to create this emotional distance in the first place. And I think maybe that's one reason why I've always joked around about Mormon stuff. Uh, It may also explain why people really don't want humor anywhere near their sacred things, because not everybody has or wants that emotional distance. So in this case, I never saw falling in love or making out with a Japanese girl as a legitimate threat. There was plenty of incongruity in that scenario for me, plenty of emotional distance, psychic distance, and, you know, being single out by the Yakuza, having a hit placed on me, that's just ludicrous. But to my parents, having me so far away and being really helpless to protect me from the evils of the world and the buffetings of Satan as I'm a soldier in God's army, you know, these were legitimate fears and they really didn't appreciate me making light of them. So sorry about that, but you know, they got over it. So as for Yuki, Well, she continued to flirt a little bit and pout a little bit, and she strung us along for a while. And at one point, I had to tell her that we were going to stop having any more missionary discussions unless she started accepting the commitments that we were giving her and really took the teachings seriously, that these meetings were not just some excuse for supervised dating sessions. And we ended up dropping her. But she came back about a week or two later and said she was sorry, she was really interested, and she ended up getting baptized. Now, on the day of her baptism... She didn't show up at the church, and I thought for sure that that meant she had just been stringing us along the whole time, and I was pretty angry. And then I felt like an idiot for being angry because a few hours later, she showed up with tears stained all down her face because she had actually gone to her previous congregation and endured some kind of public excommunication ceremony before coming to our church to be baptized. You know, she wanted to have a clean slate before her baptism. Thus, she ended up making friends with people in the ward and becoming very active. And I heard that at some point she moved to the U.S. and married a return missionary and probably lived happily ever after as far as I know. But I've never heard from her uh, since my mission. So... You know, the other guys uh, have listened to this and they've given me some feedback. Matt and Tom specifically said that it was a little too much like listening to a guy laugh at his own jokes and give himself high fives all the way through. Well, it works for Jimmy Fallon. (laughs) If I don't laugh at my own jokes, no one's going to do it, Justin, you understand? Um... And that one's for you, little sister. So there you go. No real point to this one other than just sharing with you this little nugget from my past. So there you go. Amen. 
Once upon a time, there was a little princess, the most beautiful little princess in all the land. This is Joyce McKinney, and the little princess she's talking about is herself. Her hair was long and blonde, and her eyes were as brown as the dark waters of the river which ran by her castle. But the little princess was unhappy, for she was lonely. In 1977, Joyce McKinney and three male companions flew from Los Angeles, California to London, England to track down and kidnap a Mormon missionary named Kirk Anderson. Someday, she would find her kind, handsome prince, and he would sweep her up on a big, white horse, and he would take her away and marry her, and they would live happily ever after. Joyce had met Kirk months earlier in Utah, and was convinced that he was her kind and handsome prince. But when he went away on his mission without telling her he was leaving or where he was going, she thought he had been absconded by an evil brainwashing cult. So she hired a private detective in Los Angeles to track him down and then traveled with her entourage to England to liberate him from this wicked cult and live happily ever after. Hi, I'm Joyce McKinney, and that's from my pending book, A Very Special Love Story. A very special love story indeed. But when two of these three male accomplices realized what Joyce was planning, they bailed. Joyce and her very special friend, KJ, tracked down Elder Anderson, abducted him at false gunpoint, drove him to a quaint little cottage in the country, tied him spread-eagle to a bed, and for three days engaged in some very special love. I'm Glenn Ostland. And today on Infants on Thrones, I'll be joined by Randy Snyder. I remember having like wet dreams about that. Like that would be so awesome. Jesse Smith. She's this beauty queen, you know, hooker with with all this money. And Tom Perry. So Glenn, the the most important question of all. Yeah. Would you still tap that? (laughs) (laughs) To review the documentary Tabloid and discuss in excessively jocular detail the thoroughly ribald case of the manacled Mormon in sex chains. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. Today we're going to review the 2010 documentary Tabloid. Now, Tabloid tells the bizarre story of Joyce McKinney, who made national news in the U.S. and created a huge tabloid buzz in Britain when she kidnapped and repeatedly raped a Mormon missionary. Now, the documentary features Miss McKinney herself passionately telling her side of the story in what I thought was a rather shocking display of delusion. It's one of those train wreck type situations where it's just so awful, but you can't quite look away. That's tabloid. But what really intrigued me the most about the movie was the way that Mormonism was portrayed and the role that it played in Miss McKinney's delusions. Now, some of the ways they portrayed Mormonism I agreed with and others I really didn't. But it seemed like the sort of thing that could inspire a lively panel discussion and would hopefully tell an engaging story to you listeners that... You know, if you're like me, you probably hadn't heard before. Now, Tabloid's available on Netflix, so if you haven't seen it, you might want to go check it out before listening any further. But I will provide a high-level summary of the main point, so you should be able to follow along even if you haven't seen it. Now, before we go any further, I want to warn you, if you're easily offended by off-color language 
or overtly sexual discussions, or even, you know, the locker room talk where a bunch of guys are talking about things that yeah, maybe they really don't know that much about, then this isn't the episode for you. Uh, these panel discussions did get pretty raw, so go ahead and proceed at your own discretion. Okay, so let's dive right in. Here is Joyce McKinney herself telling her side of the story. I hadn't been out in the world much till I went to Utah. You know, I hadn't been around much. Joyce McKinney was born in North Carolina in 1949. Her family eventually moved out west, and she was crowned Miss Wyoming in 1972 at the age of 22. She presents herself as an innocent, sheltered young woman, but as you'll see, later evidence arises that calls all that into question. But there were a lot of men attracted to you. Well, I guess so. I don't know. I'm not that vain, and I'd say. But I was looking, I, I wasn't looking for just any guy. I wanted a special guy. I wanted a special guy. And he had to have certain qualities. There are plenty of guys out there, but I wanted a special guy. So she went to BYU, where special guys are grown, and joined the drama department. And at some point, a professor of hers introduced her to the missionaries. And this is how she came to be familiar with the Mormon church. And it sounds kind of like it was a little underhanded way that the professor did this. But um, I'll let you judge that for yourself. I met this professor, and he said, well, I've got these perfect guys for you. And they're just your type, Joyce. They don't smoke, and they don't drink, and they're clean cut, and you're just going to love them. And why don't you come over to my house and meet them? They were Mormons. They didn't tell me what Mormonism was all about. He didn't say, we're a group that believes that Jesus was a polygamist and was married to Mary Magdalene. Really? He didn't say, we believe that God lives on a star named Kolob. Well, technically, it's a planet near the star Kolob, but eh, okay. He didn't say, we believe that black people were cursed with the mark of Cain. Uh... They made me think they were a church. They made me think that they were family-oriented. And so I was drawn to them as a young 19-year-old teenager like a moth to a flame. I was just so happy to go to this place where I thought that I would have my pick of just all-American friends, people, husband material, I guess. And one of these all-American guys was named Kirk Anderson. And, and you know... Joyce owned a Corvette, and Kirk owned a Corvette. She was yeah, maybe six or seven years older than him at the time that they met. So I don't really understand when she's talking about being 19 years old. She was older when they met. But, um, you know, they met, and it was Sparks. And she said uh, right at the, at the top, the very first date, there were some really special things that were happening. Because remember, this was a very special love. He actually told me he loved me the first night I met him. And asked me to marry him the second night. And then the next thing I know, we're naming our kids. And we were going to name them all with J's and K's. J for Joyce, K's for Kirk. Joshua, uh, Jacob. You know, we had the names picked out. Kyle, Kirk. Coriantimer. So at this point, Joyce claims that they were engaged. But then a very strange thing happened. Kirk and I were just ready for the big wedding and everything was happy the only problem is i was wanting to get married in the christian church and he was getting pressure from the other side and so one day he vanished into thin air i don't mean he left me i don't mean he abandoned me i don't mean he left me for another woman i mean he evaporated into thin air he wasn't the kind of person to just run off like that his things were still at my place and you know 
it was just weird. Yeah, it is weird because, you know, I've gone on a mission. And when there were people that I wanted to keep in touch with, I gave them my address. They knew exactly where I was. I did what any American girl would do if her fiancé vanished in thin air. I looked for him. I went to L.A., and I worked three jobs trying to save up enough money to pay a private investigator to find out what happened to him. Now, after this story became huge, the British press went back and dug up a lot of dirt on Joyce. And they found topless photos, personal ads in the paper offering nude massage, oral sex. So it appears that these three jobs in L.A. were a little more than what an innocent, sheltered woman would be willing to do. Now, she denies that she did any of those things, but the evidence says otherwise. The private investigator found him in England. The Mormons had him. Yep, the Mormons had him. So she and her best friend, a guy named KJ, uh, decided to start planning this trip to England to go and rescue Kirk from the Mormons. KJ was like my big brother, and he said to me, I don't want you going over there to England by yourself. said, you don't know what they're going to do to you. All I knew is this powerful group had done something to the man I loved. We got two bodyguards to go with us. One was a big guy that was a, uh, what do you call it, a bodybuilder guy, and the other was a pilot. Okay. Now, I've got to read to you the personal ad that Joyce put in the newspaper to recruit these bodyguards. So it says, free trip to Europe. Big, adventurous dude wanted. Must be six foot two and over 210 pounds. Seeking a Rocky or Mr. Atlas type, prefer bodybuilder or musician. All expenses paid if you help a lovely fox fulfill a unique romantic sexual fantasy as part of her wedding party. So she used this ad to recruit two bodyguards who traveled to England with Joyce and KJ. But eventually both of them bailed when they realized what she was up to. She had this wireless radio equipment so that KJ could talk to the missionaries and she could listen in from the car. And they had chloroform and a fake gun to ensure that they could take Kirk with minimal resistance. Here's what one of the bodyguards had to say about this whole experience. Out come two young men dressed in suits, a tie and a white shirt. And she told me, there is Kirk. Well, I was totally surprised. This was nobody being held captive. And that's when Joyce kind of leveled with me showed me a bottle of chloroform and I'd already seen this phony gun they had I was going to be no part of any of this and I told her that so it was just Joyce and KJ at this point but that didn't stop her plan she had KJ pose as an investigator and they set up a meeting at the church so when Kirk showed up KJ pulled out the gun and marched him out to the car he got in the car and he goes how long have you been in England? Like a robot. He was almost speaking in a monotone voice, and he'd go, they said you didn't love me anymore. It was like he had a personality alteration. Kirk number one and Kirk number two. Kirk number one was the man I fell in love with. Kirk number two was cult Kirk. Now, Kirk Anderson didn't want to have anything to do with this movie, so all we know from his side of the story are things that he testified in court back in 1977. But according to Joyce, Kirk got in the car and went with her willingly. According to Kirk, he was chloroformed and covered under a blanket. And then Joyce and KJ drove him out to a small rented cottage in Devon, tied him up to a bed, then KJ bowed out while Joyce and Kirk celebrated what she called their, uh, you know, three-day glorious honeymoon. 
And this is where things get really crazy. Well, I was looking for someplace peaceful, where he could normalize, someplace where he could come back to Kirk number one. I had a big fireplace, patchwork quilt, silk sheets, blue to match his eyes with his initials on it, cinnamon oil back rub, because he loved my back rubs, and uh, all his favorite foods in the fridge. Oh, I had chocolate cake and southern fried chicken. He loved my chicken. Mashed potatoes. I made everything that he wanted. I was like his little, you know, wifey almost. We're slow dancing. He got turned on as we were dancing. I'll be blunt. He had an erection, okay. And uh, we sat down in the bed, and he said, can you give me a back rub? And I got the cinnamon oil, which I had warmed, and I was giving him a back rub. And he had these ugly garments on. And I said, how am I supposed to give you a back rub with this Mormon thing on? And I ripped the ugly things off because they smelled, you know, and they had those occultic symbols. And I didn't want anything ugly there in our beautiful moment you know it was like a honeymoon cottage and we burned him we actually burned him <laughs> and you uh, ripped off his magic underwear and, and i threw them in the fireplace where they belonged <laughs> where they should put them all as far as i'm concerned <laughs> her story is a little difficult to follow because at first she says that he got aroused while they were dancing and he had an erection but later she says that he was impotent, and the only way that she could get him erect was to tie him down to the bed, a little trick that she read in a book so that he could just let go and not have to feel any guilt for what was going on. So she admits to tying him up, but, you know, she says it was for his own good. Kirk was impotent. He was sexually impotent because of this um, brainwashing He's not supposed to have sexual feelings. He's not supposed to have emotional feelings. He's not supposed to fall in love. And we were in love. He loved me and I loved him. I knew there was only one way to get Kirk out of Mormonism, and that was to make love with him. Because for a Mormon missionary to have a love affair is totally taboo. They can't be in a room alone with a girl without their companion with them, to even shake hands. So if it took giving up my virginity in a romantic moonlit cottage, so be it. I just wanted him out of that cult. Jeez, that's not how I got out. We started to make love, and all of a sudden, he jumps up in the, on the bed like this, and he goes, By the law of the Holy Prophet Joseph Smith, I cannot touch my bodies, other bodies of others in an unnatural experimental way. By the law of the Holy Prophet Joseph Hold a Book of Mormon firmly in hand. Sing a Mormon song. Sing a Mormon song. Because he's turned on, and he's not supposed to be. And I go, oh. I'd come across an ocean to find him, and... The Mormons were in our bedroom. Okay, now that chant seems a little weird. And we'll talk about this in more detail during the panel discussion. But to me, this sounds like a freaked out Mormon kid trying everything that he can do to keep this event from happening. It doesn't sound at all like he's a willing participant. I went back in the kitchen and I got myself a real cold glass of water. Does he still have the erection while he's chanting? Well, I came back <laughs> To be continued, I came back in there and I'm thinking, am I doing something wrong? He started to cry. He had ejaculated, I guess. He said, please don't tell him about the filthy place, what happened at the filthy place. And I said, honey, what's wrong? He goes, they'll know. I mean, every guy on the planet masturbates and has wet dreams. And I asked him, I said, honey, don't you have those dreams guys have or whatever they're called? He goes, yeah, but I didn't tell him in the interview. I go, what interview? They talk to you about this stuff? He goes, yeah. Once a week, they take us in rooms by ourselves and they say, 
M1, M2, M3, M1, M2, M3. I go, what's that? Masturbation once, masturbation twice, masturbation three times. So many times you're out, you're extra home, you're off your mission, you can't get married in the temple. I go, Kirk, these people are controlling your sex drive. They're controlling your mind. They're controlling your food. You can't have coffee, tea, or Pepsi Cola. You see what I mean by train wreck? We made love actually for three days. We sort of like didn't get out of bed. It was a honeymoon. That's what it was for me. I wanted us to have a good sex life. I wanted to be a good wife to Kirk, and I wanted to, to give him lots of babies in my tummy. I didn't look at sex as a bad thing with him. I looked at it as a melting of two souls. Because when he kissed me, it was like we melted into one person. It was like I didn't know where I stopped and he began. Eventually, they left the cottage, and Kirk was able to call the mission home and get back to safety. Joyce and KJ were arrested. There was a bit of jail time and a preliminary trial. Uh, She gave this infamous statement that she loved Kirk so much that she would do anything for him, even ski down Mount Everest with a carnation in her nose. You know, she was released on bail, and then she snuck out of the country very shrewdly, never going back and never really paying for her crimes. But, of course, to her, she never thought it was a crime at all. It's not really kidnapping if she's just trying to rid Kirk 1 of the brainwashed Kirk 2. And as for the question of rape? Do you think a woman can rape a man? No. I think that's like putting a marshmallow in a parking meter. I don't, a guy either wants to have sex or he doesn't. He has an erection or he doesn't. So there you go. You will never be able to look at a marshmallow again without thinking of Joyce McKinney and the manacled Mormon in sex chains. Okay, so let's go to the panel discussion where we bring on Tom and Randy and Jesse. And uh, then later on, a little surprise visit from Matt, but uh, don't want to give it away just yet. I think she was she was supposedly so smart and such a genius oh. that that's what pushed her into this like level of crazy, like just psychological dilemma that she had going on in her head where she didn't know what was reality and, what, and she thought she was invincible or I don't know what was going on. Well, crazy plus a high IQ makes a great criminal. So like if I was in England and I was let out on bail, I wouldn't know what the fuck to do. She knew exactly what to do and she got out of England with a very clever scheme. So, uh, you know, I give her props for being clever in a lot of situations that I would have known what to do. But overall, she's just a crazy person that I just want to back slowly away from. Yeah, it is a little frightening. She, she, she is was, a little frightening. She was ter- I was terrified of her by the end of the by the end of the show. It was just I mean, the stuff that she came up with, you know, she's talking yeah. about getting out of England and she's like, oh, I just got a few uh, death certificates or birth certificates from dead people. And like, you know. I don't even know how to do that. How <laughs> yeah, do you do that like, when you're in a foreign <laughs> fucking country? I thought it was interesting, too, the part about she's admitting to the camera that she lied about things like that. You know, yeah, she's right. admitting that she was deceiving people and she's saying, look how clever I am for doing this. But then at the same time, she's denying these things. Like, well, they never took any nude pictures of me. Right. She's expecting us to buy one of her other stories while she's (laughs) admitting to the smaller ones. She's (laughs) both intelligent but crazy. And we can't relate to it because we're neither – I don't have an IQ of 168 and I'm not crazy. So it's like really hard to relate to her. Like 
impossible to relate to her. So I want to I want to go back for a minute when when she's talking about meeting the missionaries, her she hears their message and she's very impressed with them. So I, I, I want to explore that for a minute. But she said what they didn't they didn't tell her was that we're a group who believes that Jesus was a polygamist, that he was married to Mary Magdalene, <laughs> that God lives on a star named Kolob, and that <laughs> yeah, black and people is... were cursed with the mark of Cain. So I, yeah. I wanted to, to kind of go down that list and see, like, did Mormons as a group believe these things well, that they she's went claiming? Well, they went down the anti-Mormon stereotype. They even did the cartoon from the Godmakers. Right. Godmakers, like, was throughout this whole documentary. Right, they kept splicing me. it in. I hated yeah. I hate the Godmakers. Yeah. yeah, lots of anti-Mormon propaganda. It was kind of, yeah. So, so uh, did did you guys ever come across that Jesus was a polygamist? Did you ever believe that at <laughs> any point? Uh, I heard in your life? I heard I heard speculation that he was married to Mary Magdalene, but never a polygamist. Oh, I heard it because uh, yeah. I served in Arizona, and so there was a lot of like amateur theologians that were Hugh Nibley fans. You know, I, I had a uh, ward mission leader who was like really into, you know, the deep doctrines. And this and is when you were a missionary there, right? This is when I was a missionary and I was just like, you know, <laughs> like at the feet of the master. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that one of the reasons Jesus was hated was because of all the wives that followed him. Wow. And, and so it was like, Oh my God, I'm, I am being, I am privy to some very special knowledge. Did, it you was, be, uh, did you believe it when you heard this? Oh, yeah, because it played into the polygamy narrative. You know, if, if uh, Joseph Smith was a polygamist, Brigham Young was a polygamist, well, the Son of God must be a polygamist. Yeah, well, And all this stuff must have heaven. been lost during the apostasy. Yeah. Like, to me, it was always impossible to imagine Jesus having sex. Him being oh, got, and you've got an amazing imagination, Glenn. How often do you try and imagine that? Exactly. Glenn. Thank you. All right, drum roll, please. <laughs> Stop that, whatever that is. So, Jesus with porn music in the background. <laughs> That's right, awesome. Right. Um, anyway... I, I don't even know if I can finish that that thought. So, so the second the second thing was that he was married to Mary Magdalene, and I had heard that speculated, but uh, I, I never I never completely believed it. I think both of those were pretty common beliefs. Like, even though this so this list that you you gave, yeah, uh, the rest of you guys were saying, oh, this is the anti Mormon list. I, I I hate the God Makers, and I think the cartoon is stupid. The the you know the B roll from Godmakers that he plays along with it, but actually, I would say everything on the list—it's not couched in Mormon terms, but it's a hit. I mean, I think See, I would disagree. I disagree with that first one, though. If you're talking about Mormons in general, that Mormons as a group collectively believe that Jesus was a polygamist, I think well, you they're could, never I, they're I, never going to say that. But no, but I think you but, may find pockets of people who do. But I, 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 I agree with I agree with Glenn on this because yeah. like that's not how Mormons self-identify. They don't. Uh-uh. Go, ah, no, I, I agree. Gonna, I agree. They're not going to ever self-identify as it. But when you get down to brass tacks and say, "Is polygamy part of you know the eternal plan?" Yes. Okay. Does Jesus have a wife? I don't think you're going to get that yes from most Mormons. 
really. I think you, yeah, I think you get to shrug the shoulders like, oh. I don't know. I don't. I don't it's know. I'll figure that out. Salvation. Right. I'll yeah. figure that out when I have to. But right now, yeah. But here, the point, the yeah. point, Jesse, is that she's portraying this as like all Mormons believe this, and that's what they're uh, secretly saying behind closed doors, and they're not. Yeah. But, but I don't know. Maybe during the seventies. Yeah, yeah, but not during not during sacrament meeting, not during Relief Society, and not during Gospel Doctrine. I agree. And, but, and, but I will give you the nod on the blacks and the priesthood thing. Obviously, that was going on then. So, and, oh, and the yeah. reason I'm interested in it, Jesse, is is to test her credibility as a witness and her veracity. You know, oh, I mean, there's yeah, well. like there, there's ways that she represents Mormons that are so completely foreign to me having grown up as a Mormon that it makes it hard for me to believe other things that I don't have experience with. You know, like Randy said earlier, he can't really identify her because uh, identify with her because he doesn't have that kind of IQ and isn't crazy. He thinks, but um, you know, <laughs> I think, Oh, fuck you. <laughs> we, know he, we know he's not that smart. I mean, let's, we, we, mm, we can, we can agree on that. That's a given. Of it. That's a given. Um, but, but, but there's certain things that I can, identify with or I should at least be able to identify with in her story if it holds any weight and sure. there's things that just don't so that that that's why I'm interested in testing this so like the God you know Jesus married to Mary Magdalene okay I can kind of see that again I don't think that's a mainstream belief of the church or any kind of requirement uh, to be a Mormon um, that God lives on a star named Kolob and that's not even accurate even God it drives me crazy it's the star is a, is like the sun in the solar system of God. He did, he lives in the planet nearest the star named yeah. Kolob. He lives in the Kolob solar system. That's splitting hairs. I do. I, is, yeah, I agree. But I think it's that's still, splitting hairs. It just bugs me aesthetically that they say he lives on Kolob yeah. and that we will inherit our own planet. No, we inherit a fucking universe. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the, Troy Williams makes a point. Uh, of, you know, I wanted my own planet. You know, like, I never thought of it as I get a planet that's Glenn's planet. You know, right. I thought, you get you you have your universe. You get worlds you without number. Yeah, worlds yeah, without number like, kind of thing. Right. But yeah. uh, but I, I but agree it, with you, Jesse. That That is splitting hair. So I, I think with her, I agree with this. But the point is that she paints the Mormon church in a light that none of us really identified with. Black people Even curse you, with the Mark of Cain? No, I'm talking about like this, like, like we have all these dark secrets that we hush well, hush. Yeah, she called it a cult. I mean, obviously she she's not. Times, she's not trying times. to appeal to a, a Mormon audience or identify with a Mormon audience. She's trying to appeal to the to the other people, she, to the out group. You know, yeah. she's trying to. But to, in light of the rest of her story, it 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 shows her propensity to exaggerate, um, make everything outside of her one hundred percent black and. Everything inside of her totally white. Yeah. She has to view the church that way because in her mind it explains why the love of her life rejected her. It wasn't because he rejected her. It was because this terrible cult brainwashed him and made him reject her. Well, this is what bugs me about the way she portrays the church. It's like – and this is what bugs me about the God makers. It's like the truth is bad enough, but they then embellish the fucking truth and and, and then give – like people in the church reason to just totally reject all the you know true things that they have to say about the church the truth is bad enough as it is and she makes a cartoon character out of it well and i i found that as one of the major 
criticisms that I had with this documentary because there there was no balanced other side of Mormonism from what she was saying. There was just Troy Williams who was on there essentially validating everything that she said about Mormons as a cult. The way she painted it was like we're just a bunch of like chanting right. uh automatons no I, I yeah i agree she gives a she gives a negative caricature of the church to suit her own purpose right and and she she makes it seem like this was all being done to kirk against his will right yeah can we talk about kirk because okay. i want to know what's they i want to know what's going on with this guy they didn't have him in the documentary they didn't give an explanation they tried he refused. They tried to get him. So knowing the kind of both sides of the story from from the documentary, his his own words aren't aren't represented. But there's her side, and then there's the side of what a lot of the evidence and what a lot of the other people say. What do you guys think was going on in Kirk's mind when she shows up in England and he's there with his companion? A whole a sharknado of uh, <laughs> things going on in his mind and in his. Well, I mean, did, I, did, did she have a gun? No, she sent no. her her little toy boy to go uh, say, "Hey, Joyce is out in the well, car." No, he had a he had a toy gun. Like she just yeah. sent this guy that Kirk would have no idea who this guy was. What is going on with Kirk when he goes out and gets in the car? I mean, he was a big enough. He was a big guy. I don't. It didn't sound like anyone was alleging that they forced him into the car. Well, um, there was a gun. It was a fake gun, but Kirk wouldn't know that. Uh, well, this this is where the story gets weird because we don't actually know whether he went in on his own or whether you know they threatened him and then he was going in for you know under force or under threat. It, it gets real complicated right here. Well, maybe so, it's complicated for you, Tom, but I prayed about this before I watched the movie. <laughs> yeah. And I so, I had the spirit with me. And so the, set us straight there, Glenn. Yeah, set the, us straight. Well, the spirit confirmed to me <laughs> that he he was not a willing participant in this in any way. So None. he was a t- 100% victim. I think so. Come on. That's what so uh, his... the spirit whispers this to me and tells me it is true. <laughs> tells me it is true. So uh, she raped him, yeah, and and she against his will, it, his dick got the, hard over yeah. and over uh-huh. and over uh-huh. and over. Uh huh. Well, and and then she burned the garments. And there's there's that one scene that I actually thought was a little bit brash was where they showed the symbols of the garment real quick, like on the uh, documentary. I was like, what? That's the brash. Hell was that, you, Tom? But that was like banal to me. Well, okay, fine, fine. <laughs> I think what they showed were Masonic symbols. Yeah, exactly. That's what they were. Well, okay, fine. Jeez. I see. I don't. I I think a little bit differently. I think he went into the car, probably unwillingly. But to me, I don't find it credible that he was there for that long with her and their their journey without um, escaping. If he had been. And I hate to I hate to blame the victim in a rape situation, <laughs> rape. because. But really, I mean, it, they said he was like close to three hundred pounds. Yeah, right. right. Six, yeah. So he was Six, a three. big. Yeah. He was a big, big boy, and I just have a hard time believing that uh, that she could um, control him like that. I mean, even if she's wow. stripped him naked and gotten on top of him, if he. 
if he'd wanted to thrash around and uh, I mean, I don't know. It, it would have been. He was <laughs> he was manacled, manacled Mormon. He was yes, tied got, spread eagle to the I, bed. I, 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 why am I the eagle, why am I the spread only, spread why am I the only one? I'm the only one here that's like, do you, none of you guys know the power of vagina and boobs? No, and that's, I, that's what I'm those saying. Those things will throw a six foot four, two hundred fifty pound guy to his knees. That's what the, I'm the saying. Way I, Tom. The way I see it is, I think she pulled up. And he's like, oh, my gosh. Hey, how's it going? She's like, hey, can, you want to come for a quick ride? We'll be real quick. And I don't know if the gun came out or not. <laughs> okay. And he probably went over there and got in the car. And then little by little, he started to piece it together like, oh, shit, she's not going to take me back. Um, uh, she's really- as you're saying this, I've got like this anime thought bubbles coming up. I really wish I could illustrate <laughs> this for the, the listening audience. But keep going, Tom. <laughs> She's going, wow, she looks great in that tank top. You need to spice yeah. in some Japanese. Oh, cooking in Washington. Well, because I don't, yeah. I, don't know how, I don't know how long he'd been out on his mission, but I tell you what, if, if I was on my mission and an ex-girlfriend who was pretty attractive came up in a car and says, hey, you want to go for a quick ride? You remember me? And maybe she had a see-through shirt with no bra, too. You know? And I was like, <laughs> like she did earlier. Yeah, I know, right? Island. That's how she got the pilot, yeah. And so I'm sure he probably said he turned to his companions like, Yeah, just just give me a few minutes, just a few minutes. And then he got in the car and then that was it. And she probably didn't have to use the chloroform, or whatever. And then he did say that initially it was rape, that he was tied up, spread eagle, like it says. But then the first three times he was raped, and then after that, he was not tied up, and he I guess he didn't claim rape on those. Sure. That's confabulation right there. Well, and that's, that's what she that's what she quoted as well. She's she quoted his testimony in it. She said, Well, he said after the first three times, then he was a lot more willing to, to yeah, do it at that point. Yeah, she says he wasn't complaining by the seventh time. <laughs> right. Hey, did you guys think at all when you were watching this, like, wow, this is every missionary's fantasy? That, <laughs> yes. Yes. Like, yes. That your hot That's why girlfriend no shows up. This guy, and, this guy, and, this guy is living every missionary's <laughs> wet dream. So why would we feel bad when every guy wants to be him? Yeah, yeah because why, why, Tom? Because you are able to have sex over and over and over on, over this wonderful weekend with no yeah. guilt. It's not your fault. Yeah, you get oh, to go to your mission. You get to go to your mission president and say, "Hey, I was tied up. I don't know." <laughs> It was weird. I mean, she she literally threw herself at me. She says that he, as soon as she started putting the moves on it. Well, first of all, she she talks about how he was impotent because of brainwashing. <laughs> BS. Yeah, and and that she was willing to give up her virginity just to get him out of that cult. You know, if that's what it took, she was going to do it. You know, so this is a noble action that she's she's doing. And then there um, was also the all money to get on this trip through prostitution. Yeah. She's going to lose her virginity on this weekend with this guy. Yeah, right. well, there was this there was this weird obsession that I really couldn't wrap my brain around, where she really felt like she needed to get pregnant by this guy. Yeah. What What did you guys think when she did this chant, like? By the holy prophet Joseph Smith, I cannot touch my body or other people's body in an unnatural way. You know, she she said that he sat up and he did this. Bullshit. No, none of us have ever even heard of that. No, yeah, well, he might have. He might have. He might have what? By the holy prophet Joseph no, Smith? No, oh, I don't know. He probably, he probably did raise his hand. 
you know, and do some sort of like say get, it, Tom. Defense. What did he say, do? <laughs> say it. He would say, "In the name of Jesus Christ, I command thee to get behind me, Satan." Yeah, yeah. something like and that. She, and I think I think she just misunderstood mis, uh, what he was saying, or, or he might have yeah. even like mispronounced what he was saying too, because you know he. Oh no, he he probably uh, like if if that happened, like I can imagine that incident happening. That he raises his arm to the square and tries to cast out the the devil that's in her because he thinks she's possessed. Yeah. Um, and that she has no idea what he's doing, and so this confabulation of her memory, she's just you know saying it felt like this to her, so foreign. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not like fixating on the specific words, but that he actually did something like that. That's what I thought. I could see yeah. that. Yeah, and they took this little aside to talk about garments, and they they called it the Mormon underwear. Which, like, what do you guys think when you hear that? Well, it is the Mormon underwear. They called it the magic underwear. Oh, the magic. That's right. The magic well. underwear. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's just another card right out of the Godmakers. I thought it's just another. But uh, it's one of those things where it's not the Mormon term for it. But as an, if you're an outsider. I mean, what else do you call it? Because garment doesn't make sense. Garment is just a piece of a, a piece of clothing to other people, and temple garment, or you know, the the coats of skin. I mean, none of those Mormon terms make any sense to to an outsider. So, what? How do you describe the temple garment to an outsider? I I think that magic underwear is so pejorative, and it, it kind of goes to what Randy was saying earlier. It's so over the top. That somebody who's on the inside really? of Mormonism would just reject it offhand and not think about the implications there. You know, do do Mormons think of garments as being magic or having magical properties? Yes. Some do. I, Some I, do. Not magic, I think not magical do. like David Copperfield or um, you know, go <laughs> go bluth or whatever. Yeah, like but, spiritual armor. Yeah, like like they're going to I mean they tell you that in the temple too, that they're yeah. gonna be a shield and a protector to you as long as you wear them. And, um, you know, your bishop will ask you if you're wearing them day and night. And and there's all kinds of stories about them protecting people. I mean, that's not that's not real fringy stuff within Mormonism. No, I, I think that's I pretty a, mainstream. I have a personal story. When I was on my mission, uh, we were riding up, I was on the reservation, and we were riding down a very steep, gravelly hill. And my handlebar split in half. You know, I went straight down. And I went home. And I looked at all of my scratches, and all of them were outside of the line of my garments. And I told that story over and over how my garments were a protector to me. So it was there. There is an element that these are some magical shield, both physically yeah. and spiritually. But but, but here I, I object to the word magic because it's so secular and like the that protection to that an you outsider, look to yourself. To an outsider, sacred. what word are you going to use? To an outsider, what sacred. word are you going to use? Sacred. Yeah, sa- sacred garments. Like, yeah. they, no, they, because they are protectors. They're protectors against the unseen evils of the world and physical harm. What else is that but magic? Yeah. What yeah. other colloquial word can an outsider use on regular cotton, polyester, uh, fiber, uh, underwear that protects you from a bike crash you know or to quote uh, uh, the guy who uh, the Marriott guy when he was burned he was burned everywhere except where his garments protected him what other colloquial word can you use 
than magic. Okay, I'm going to jump in here for a second, uh, you know, because Randy mentioned this quote from uh, Marriott that was given uh, on national TV, an interview that Mike Wallace did in the mid-90s. And uh, interestingly enough, the adjective that Mike Wallace uses, well, I don't know, listen to it yourself. We're not a weird people. A weird people? Yes. Mormons know that some outsiders think they are weird. Why? Well, for one thing, devout Mormons wear sacred undergarments for protection from harm. Cotton undershirts with undershorts that reach to their knees. Do you wear the sacred undergarments? Yes, I do. And I can tell you they do protect you from harm. Really? Uh Uh-huh. I was in a very serious boat accident. Fire. Boat was on fire. I was on fire. Mm -hmm. I was burned. My pants were burned right off me. I was not burned above my knee. Where the garment was, I was not burned. And you believe it was the sacred undergarments? I do, particularly on my legs, because my, my pants were gone. And my undergarments were not cinched. I mean, I think you're expecting way too much from an outsider in uh, this instance. You could say divine. Yeah, the, there's a lot of terms, but I, I mean, semantics, semantics. So this chick burns the garments off this guy, right? Okay, Rips Tom wants off. us to move on. She throws him in the. She threw him in the fireplace. Yeah, something like that. So at least he disposed of the marks properly. So why is it that the yeah. garments will burn I when they're the in the thing. fireplace, yes, but they won't like, burn if yeah, they're in the body? Yeah, that's how you do it. Sorry, Glenn, Glenn, start over. No, I just said, why will the garments burn in the fireplace, but they won't burn if they're on somebody's body? Oh. oh. You, found, you found the sacred loophole. Oh. Maybe they have to be touching the endowed skin in order to have the power yeah. in the right. Yeah. right, 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 right. Well, problem solved. So they're not magic underwear. It's the, it's the combination. It's so so no matter it. what I try to do, you're going to bring this shit back, don't it's, Glenn? It's, yeah, it's, it's, like, <laughs> it's like the greatest American hero putting on that super suit, and then he's got superpowers. Not anybody. You can't like have anybody put on garments and have that protection. <sighs> so it's not the magic that's in the garment. It's the covenant behind it. That's it's why. Still, it's still magic. <laughs> No, dude, because then who by cares? themselves, you're killing me. Let's move on. I, I know there's audience members out there that agree with me. Let's just move the F on. Because here's the thing about magic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go on, Glenn. Yeah, right, right, right. We're all anxious to hear. Okay. okay. So, so uh, how, how did he get out? What, what, what happened where he got out of the, the cottage? She, st- she stood up. <laughs> <laughs> she had to go to the bathroom and he yeah. she raised up off his flaxen no they just wow, he thanks, did Randy. He, he made it or she made it sound like they they were just gonna go to london and get married yeah and then they, they, they were going into london to get married like uh so they left com- they left the love cottage they're on their way and they, wait, there's wait, like wait. pictures in the newspaper or something right she sees right. a picture of him in a newspaper that he's been abducted, and she's like, wait a minute. What are you yeah, abducted? This is and they're sitting there laughing will. about it. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right. Can, I, can I make one side note comment real quick? This, uh, if only if it has to do with magic underwear. <laughs> the, the, is it KG or KJ? KJ. The, the accomplice that was yeah. apparently just head over heels for her. Before she, she played for the Suns. <laughs> Did he play for the Suns? KJ Kevin Johnson. Awesome. Kevin yeah. He dunked great, on Elijah one. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, this guy supposedly was like head over heels for her and would do anything she asked, anything. And so he, I guess, was it is it true that he was the guy that tied 
Kirk up to the bed and then he leaves the room is like sitting in the kitchen, you know, probably <laughs> twirling his thumbs like, I hope they're having a good time while he's ha- he's totally head over heels for her. I mean, did anybody else besides me feel bad for this poor guy? Yeah, but it wasn't just it wasn't just him. It was it was him, KJ, and then the pilot, yeah. and then also um, Miskovich, the guy back in L.A. who had all her, um, all her pictures, all of her, her pictures, and her um, her dog, and her all her you know the he was walking her dog while she's doing this. I mean, she she clearly had this power over guys. Yeah, so to, so I, to where she could get them to do whatever she wanted. So a I want a certain kind of guy. So I want to wave. Kind of the, I want to wave the finger of blame to you, women out there. If you guys have a lot more power over us guys than you think you do. All right, the end. So I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear this feminism crap. Like we just want to be equal. We, you guys already dominate us for the most part. All right. So just Plus, back I, especially I, if you're hot. If you're into that. I, uh, <laughs> especially if you're hot. I, I think maybe you don't quite understand what the feminism thing's about, Tom, if that's what you think. But. Yeah. Uh, for the good, just because I don't want my name attached to this, edit that whole fucking misogynistic uh, diatribe out, please. Oh, my God. Yeah, we don't want to get banned from Facebook here. Yeah, I think oh. I'm going to hate. <laughs> I would be the worst. Okay, hey, so. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you hear about that? Yeah, okay, let's not. You did what? You heard I got banned from Facebook? Yes. Yeah. You you wrote all about it. Oh, and Papa Midnight. Okay, never mind. You got banned from Facebook, Randy? That's a side story. Let's go on. Oh, for Lord's sakes, I'm totally unplugged. Um, okay, so <laughs> I think, I so, think then, so then she gets she gets arrested, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And she's in the back of a, a of a police car. She's being taken away, and she writes a note. Yeah, that, that well, she then throws she t- out the window to uh, to the press. What, what, well, not to what are say the details that, there, Tom. <laughs> two pieces of paper that were out of the Bible. Oh, that's she right. Writes, right. She writes because these God messages. put them. God put them there. Yeah, for God her. put those two blank pieces of paper at the back of the Bible. So this was her. This was her uh, one saving moment. She put the first piece of paper up her vagina. The second piece of paper up her anus because. Well, you know, she didn't have a suitcase or a purse with her, so. No, and, and, you know, and when you're in prison, they they inspect you, make sure you don't have anything on you. But she's just <laughs> in the back of the car, and then she yeah. threw him out the window as they're driving. No, no, no. Remember, no, she was in prison for a while, and yeah, that's, she why, got that's transferred. where she read the Bible. They uh, gave her a Bible. Yeah. She found the blank pieces of paper, and then when they were transporting her somewhere, um, you know, they, they're going to check her person for contraband. And she didn't want them to find these these notes, so she, like Tom said, stuck them one in her vagina, one in her anus. Why did she just stick them both in her vagina? Is it not big enough? Anyway, <laughs> that's disgusting. Because no, because one page came out of the front of the book, and the other page came out of the. Back. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> she, she was going for Alpha and Omega. <laughs> oh my it was, gosh! It was ge- Genesis to Revelation. <laughs> All right, enough, enough. Well, she throws it out the window, and she mouths to some guy. He's it, and he's able to somehow decipher her plea. I'm sure he picked it up with some tweezers and some rubber gloves. But yeah, it's so disgusting. The thought, it's terrible, terrible. So, so the rest of the documentary 
from this point really focuses on her and all of this prostitution or whatever whatever it was sex services that she was selling and a lot of nude photos of her that she claimed were fake but and and to me this, it seems really strange because i'm mostly interested in this you know missionary part of the story than than the other things that it goes on and you know there there's a story about how she gets her dog her dead dog booger cloned in korea and whenever that was you know that that was that was nuts but to me that's all there to show how credible or how believable she is you know just kind of like a look into her mind a look into her world you know and like she was talking about this dog that attacked her very viciously and she blamed the uh the pharmacist the the yeah. women at the drug counter that they gave intentionally the wrong medication to the dog and that made the dog attack her yeah and you know, she I, somehow knew that all the capillaries in his brain exploded yeah, all right <laughs> and that just made lo- him go crazy because when i was watching the movie i kept thinking why is this relevant to the story and i and yeah. i had the same thought you had glenn like oh this is the director putting the frosting on the crazy cake yeah yeah oh that's, that's good totally to what it is yeah, yeah. she like well, and all the, sh- the spirit of the dog floating around the room and everyone could see <laughs> oh, it my and I'm gosh. Like, oh well, oh, we, we finally got to the to the final stop in Crazy Town. So, Glenn, the, the most uh, important question of all. Yeah. Um, no strings attached. Would you still tap that? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I I didn't think that she was that cute. I mean, even even, even back in even no back in the, no. Really? It depended on the picture. No. Like there were some shots no. where I was like, she is hot in that picture, and those other shots, I'm like, ew. No, I'm sorry. Like I mean, Seinfeld episode. Yes, she is the girl that in some light is hot and then other lights is is ugly and you want to take her to that one restaurant where the lighting makes her look pretty like Seinfeld. Yeah. No, I mean I I can I can see the appeal. She's not really my type. She kind of looks like a who from Whoville. And uh, <laughs> that's that, that's that's kind of yeah. She did pageants when she was a little girl, so I think the moral of the story is don't have your kids in pageants. <laughs> I think that's the take-home message. So, but Tom, I, what I was hoping that you would ask, you know, when, whenever we review a movie or something like like this uh, book, or you always go around and ask people to rate it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so should I begin? Yeah, man. <laughs> I, I I thought it was. Uh, I actually enjoyed myself. There was plenty of times where I was laughing out loud. And I couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, if this was a fictionalized story, most people would dismiss it immediately. Like, ow, look at the imagination on this author. Give me a break. But the fact that there was this happened for reals. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10, dude. What do you think, Jesse? I'd give it a 7.5. I, I really enjoyed it. It's not super long. Um, I like the style of the documentary. I thought it was pretty um, informative. Um yeah, it was it was a good it was a good watch. I liked it. All right, Randy. Uh, I'm like Jesse. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm like Jesse. Although uh, Tom and Jesse are not on the side of the fence that Glenn and I are, where we never heard this story. We never like we were like we couldn't believe that we hadn't heard this story um, because there's so many ridiculous apocryphal stories that go around missions. And the only stories I heard of were uh, Florida State. Like, if you went to, on a mission to Tallahassee, that sorority initiation rights were to um, bag a missionary. And that was this lurid and um, crazy sex story I'd ever heard about missionaries. 
But if I'm rating the movie, um, you know, based on the amount of people they were able to gather together, because uh, the little the guy was KJ. He's dead. I mean, he lived till 2004. Why didn't she clone KJ? I know. <laughs> she clones the dog Booger, but she doesn't clone KJ. If she cloned KJ, now she would have had like name, Tom. She would have had her minion, and she could have had many minions. Yeah. She had she had what six boogers? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> they even put the names of all the boogers. They were all booger something, booger this, oh booger that. Gosh, I'd give it a seven and a half as well. I, I'd probably give it maybe maybe a six and a half or a seven. So I'm I'm right in with you guys. I my biggest complaints. I, I didn't think that that their presentation of the Mormon church was as balanced as I would have liked it to have been. I, I think they went for sensational and uh, just kind of left Agreed. it there. It made me think of uh, another documentary that has a Mormon theme to it uh, called New York Doll, which uh, I think we'll probably review uh, at some point. Um, but I, I actually like that one better i i I went and i got that one and watched that with with my wife afterwards and and uh well can can i make one final comment yeah because i watched this with my wife as well and we had this discussion which i'm sure was the the highlight dilemma that this kind of story presents back in the 70s and 80s is can can a guy actually be raped that's like putting a marshmallow in a parking meter because she actually says in the documentary that she's like if he has an erection uh that's it you know, he's into it. And my, I was talking to my wife and she, she'd asked me the same question. And I thought, I think a guy can be raped, but whew, what a gray area that is. Oof. I, I remember the, the legal situation in England at the time. She couldn't be charged with rape because it wasn't it, it, there wasn't even a precedent for it. It That's hadn't been right. defined right. that, that men could be raped. Yeah. yeah, I just, I mean, forgetting the legal technicalities of 1970s England, I think... She showed up and she showed up and got him. She had, you know, muscles or thugs with her at the time. She chained him to the bed and she forcibly had sex with him. I mean, that's what it sounds like. So I don't know what that is other than rape. Yeah. But I also think that for a guy who's as big as him, if he had struggled with all his might to, of course, maybe he thought there was a gun on him. So maybe, I don't know what he was thinking, but... Um, it seemed to me like at some point in the story that he he started going along with it or he became okay with it. Um, but I, I definitely think a guy could be raped. Yeah, and I, I definitely think it was a legitimate rape, and I'm quite certain that his body shut down any process that would get him pregnant. So, <laughs> Yeah, because the human body has a way of shutting that whole it thing just, down. He just shut that whole thing. He just shut it all down. So I've heard that from doctors. Yeah. He's safe, yeah. I think, I, I think to that point, though, the, the whole concept of your erection comes from your wanting to be aroused. That's, that's not true. I mean, yeah. you could... That's you get just erection a, if the wind shifts. Yeah, that's a physiological response. <laughs> but uh, the... <laughs> I, I still like okay. I will I will grant that a man can be raped at gun. Uh, you know, if he thinks it's at gunpoint and there's muscle there, and there's a girl that's attractive enough to get him an erection. But I cannot. I just cannot put it at the same level of a woman being raped. It, okay, call. I don't. I just. I don't like using the word rape because I think that belongs to women, and and there's a certain kind of violence. So what word would you use? Magic? 
No, I think <laughs> I think it's uh, I don't know, like some kind of I got to invent a word. That's what like, you're asking I mean, me to do. It's you know, sorry, he was uh, he was forced to do something against his complete will. Oh. Um, but it's to me <laughs> obedience. It's, <laughs> it's not. I just cannot put it at the same level as a woman being raped. I, mean, I wish we had Matt on here because you know he's the expert on this stuff. But call him right now. Yes, <sighs> I guess it's, I can tell you guys. I know in in law school we studied. There were cases of of women raping men. I mean, I know there's there is legal precedence for it. But yeah, I'm calling him right now. I got him on. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, Matt. Yeah. Did you watch the movie that we were talking about, Tabloid? Tabloid. I haven't had an opportunity to now. Okay, so th- this is a, this is a case where like a 28, 29 year old woman uh, kidnaps a Mormon missionary in England, holds him in a cottage for three days, and uh, rapes him. This is a true story. Yeah, it's a true yep. story. Yeah. And so the 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 question that Tom asked at the end of the co- podcast is: Is it possible? for a woman to rape a man. And so we just got into all of these terms about like, is that really the same thing as rape or is there a better term for it? And, you know, as we're talking about it, Randy's like, man, I wish Matt was here. So we got, you well, you're, you're in luck. Cause with me as well as a uh, very experienced sex crimes detective as well, we're presenting here. So, I mean, I, I'm not aware of a case where it's been charged like an adult woman raping an adult man. Um, yeah, Jesse, you're full of shit. <laughs> I think I, I'm, I'm I not aware. Find, of, I'll I'm find. Not saying that it couldn't happen. That it couldn't happen, especially if she's penetrating him or if she's sodomizing him. No, 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 no. Just traditional intercourse. Traditional intercourse. Well, as, huh? as traditional as it can be with him being no, tied no, no. spread eagle to a bed. No, 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 no. We're talking penis into vagina. We're not talking about her grabbing big objects and sticking it up his ass. This, yeah, it, none of that was, was alleged. But it would still be sex assault. Okay. Anything that's without his consent. I mean, absolutely. Okay, but so, my so point, a, an erect penis does not suggest consent. Correct. Okay. Of course not. It's a physiological response. That's like saying when kids, because a kid <clears throat> happens to respond whether it be female or male, which they do, by the way, they, they, they often will report pleasure. Pleasure, It's a physiological response. Yeah. And, often, and, and even women do when they're raped, will report, will, will disclose a response. It's, it's physiological, that, and, and, and often the abuser will do it so that it is pleasurable. But that doesn't make it less abuse or, or that doesn't take away the lack of consent component. I mean, the, the, there's a violence to, to forcing a body part of yours into the body part of another versus, you know, uh, tricking you to have an erection and then, you but know, you wouldn't sit, even have to sitting trick. on your penis. No. Would you agree that it's a fundamentally less violent act? No. I, you know, but I guess, I guess what I don't do is try to um, give a hierarchy to – Violent or any any type of a sex offense. That's just something I don't I don't do as a uh, it's it, it just it, it becomes there, there's no point in it. It becomes nonsensical to say, well, you know, this type of rape was different than this than, than that type of rape. So I, I guess I just reject the premise that 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 there's any value in doing something like that. 
Well, and it would totally depend on the situation, too. I mean, if if she's got a gun to his head, obviously that's more violent than not having a gun to his head. So it would depend on the facts of every case in terms of how violent it was. And well, then what if, if he dropped gun to my they... head? That would shrivel my dick so fast. Maybe yeah, well, not. Okay, so, so, so what about a woman who is drugged and therefore has no memory of it? That is necessarily a less violent than somebody who happens no, to feel. No, it's incredibly violent. Yeah, and, and so what if the girl uh, drugs the guy and then does something to him? She admits to doing it, but the guy doesn't know. Often the girl isn't going to know. Most girls that get, that get drugged will get up and say, you know, there was something funny down there, or I just had this feeling, or there was a wetness, or there was something, but it's not pain, or it's not physically dis- uh, uncomfortable, but that doesn't make it any less rape. So even if the yeah, guy would Yeah, but just, she's now possibly pregnant. Let's change the facts then. The woman is, is, is raped by somebody who could never get her pregnant, and in fact, he uses a condom. Does, I mean, that, that fact alone isn't what makes it violent. Yeah, but you're talking about exceptions and not the rule. I think the rule for me is the lack of consent. And that's the rule that I focus on. I'm not sure what rule you're relying on. Your your rule is penetration. I guess that's a that's a debate, but I don't know that it's a distinction without a difference. Because I think there's a difference. It's the, I think it's a distinction with a difference. Let's I think you're ignoring the impact of a of a guy being um the victim and a guy being uh, taking advantage. That, that's a, that would be a huge psychological mindfuck. Right. Why is it so incredibly rare? You can't even think of a case. I mean, no one's saying it's, it's, it's as prevalent. Is anyone trying to advance that? No, but I'm saying it's, it's just if it almost never happens, then there must be a fundamental difference between that and your traditional man okay let me right. let me ex- let me extend that further then we're we're at a conference here where one of the one of the conferences is mother mother um, daughter incest right that what is it the secret of mother daughter incest and we were joking saying the secret is it hardly ever happens so in the instances where it happens do you discount that as well saying well because it's so rare it's really less severe than than all the the men who go around abusing their daughters. I mean, that's that just. That, I think. So, I think it is less the same argument. Here. I'll tell you, you just you just simply misunderstand the dynamics of a victim uh, because the impact of being abused by your mother. Um, the, the studies do show that their emotional trauma is much more severe for a, for a, for a myriad of reasons. All right. So I, I, you're just you're just that one. There is there is evidence to support, and you're simply wrong about that. So. I've been uh, talked down by an expert, so I will bow down to the expert. (laughs) And it's about time. So there you go. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you think there may still be any life in this dead horse, check out Tabloid on Netflix. And if you happen to have any other films or topics that you'd like to hear the panel discuss, let us know on our website, infantsonthrones.com, or find us on our Facebook page. Thanks again for listening. Anyone for the closing prayer? So while we're waiting, uh, you got kicked off Facebook? Wow. What'd you do to do that? Uh, n- <laughs> nothing, but... Oh, right. Yeah, you sound like Joyce. Like an adult, and then some fucking... <laughs>
<laughs> Prude on the Mormon Hub reported me for using hate speech because I used, not at her, but I said, she was talking about taboo words, and I said, and she, she called people that use curse words are uncouth, and I took exception to that, uncouth. And, uh, <laughs> and so I talked about how I like to use curse words uh, because they, they activate a part of your brain, and there's science behind this that uh, conveys an emotion that, that uh, euphemisms don't. Yeah, that's a long uh, way of saying it. it makes me feel good. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it does. It does. It makes yeah. you feel a way that non-taboo words don't. And and like even MythBusters did a study on this. Uh, you can endure more pain using taboo words. Even MythBusters. Yes. Even no, I did wow. not. I did not bring in MythBusters, but even, even MythBusters <laughs> studied this shit. Yeah. And uh, and then we talked I about said, it on an episode of The Bachelor for, too. I went further and I said, and I'm a big fan of blasphemy. So my, you know, I will often use the curse word, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> and, uh, this, this girl just couldn't take it. And she's like, so becoming an ex Mormon made you an asshole. I'm like, well, that's ironic that you used the curse word <laughs> and uncouth. <curse> word. <laughs> you threw the iron uh, back. Nice. I okay. said, thank you for not disappointing. You proved my point. <laughs> <laughs> and she reported me. To Facebook because I said Jesus fucking Christ, or someone who was reading the thread reported him to Facebook. You don't know that it was her. Oh, I know it was her because all of the mods, like I know Brant and Brant vouched for all the mods. They were too busy doing something; they had no idea this was going on. Yeah, but it could have been any person reading that thread. It could have been any person, but who was most pissed at me? The one who called me an asshole. You, you're the one that bases everything on evidence. I'm just saying you don't have any. You're speculating. Okay. This is complete um, speculation. Thank you. But somebody, I grant you that, Glenn. I don't know who did. It could have been the original poster who started the whole club. Anyway, somebody reported me to Facebook for using hate speech because I said Jesus fucking Christ. And from Facebook for like three days. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones.